0: Welcome to Transformation for Success with Dr. Barbara Young. If you're looking for something more, something different, something better, this is your opportunity. Over the next hour, we'll talk about inspiration for personal and professional success. Now, here is your host, Dr. Barbara Young.
1: Well, hi there, and welcome to the Transformation for Success show. Thank you for tuning in today's show with my guest, Mr. Don Holbrook. Well, I'm excited that he's here. He's a 25-year economic development economist who's been featured on Fox Networks, CBS, and NBC, and in the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, and numerous radio networks. He's a number one best-selling published author who's written 12 books. His latest bestseller, was in 2015, and it was called The Next America, How to Survive and Thrive in an Unpredictable Economy. I'm pleased, Dawn, that you are able to take time out from your busy schedule to be on the Transformation for Success show. Hi, Dawn. Hi. How are you guys doing? I am doing great. So, listeners, I want you to text or email your friends to listen in today's show, or they can download this show later for their listening pleasure. You're also invited to call in the show. We're live. Yes, and he's in the studio, and we can answer your questions. The number to call in and join the discussion is 888-346-9141. That's 888-346-9141. If you're calling internationally, and we welcome our international visitors and hello out there to all of you, 001. 480 553 5754. Today, Don is going to share his story and how his transformational journey uh, ended, really, I should say, with him actually reinventing himself and following his passion so we're going to hear from a man who was a number one best-selling author who was absolutely successful financially stable and who reinvented himself and followed his passion so now let me welcome my guest today Mr. Don Holbrook okay greetings again Don and again welcome (laughs) to the show (laughs) thank you thank you for the kind words (laughs) Well, they're not really kind, nice. they're well-deserving. I'm telling you, I know they're well-deserving. So, Don, tell me, what do you do? How did this all begin for you?
2: Well, I, I think, may I call you Barbara?
1: Absolutely, you can.
2: Okay. Um, I think, Barbara, it, I kind of had an epiphany back in, uh, right before the end of the 20th century, everybody was so hyped about, you know, Y2K and everything. And I decided that um, it was a good chance and a good time at the end of a millennium to make some real soul searching and reinvent myself. Okay. And I, I uh, basically did it very abruptly, sitting on a porch at the Vinoy Hotel in St. Petersburg, Florida at an international conference. And I decided that I wanted to um, become a leader in the industry an outspoken, have patriot for what I felt our industry needed to do to lift our country into mm-hmm. better times and to get through the tough times I knew were coming. Mm-hmm. And I basically told everybody on the porches we were smoking cigars. That's what I was going to do, and they thought I was all nuts.
1: <laughs> I'm sure they did.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and then I just decided to do it, and uh, I started reinventing myself. But I think. You know, that, and I would never go to say that I'm a super successful person, but I think that Mm -hmm. people that shoot for and attain some semblance of their idea of success have to reinvent themselves several times. Because since then, I can tell you it's been probably Mm -hmm. three or four reinventions for me.
1: Where did you, where did you all, where did this all start from you? Where where were you born and where did you grow up?
2: I grew up in Dayton, Ohio. Um, my mm-hmm. my father was a blue collar factory worker for General right. Motors my mom uh-huh. was a bookkeeper for a a small construction company and uh-huh. I uh, you know went to a private school a, a Christian private school for the first 10 years and then I uh-huh. transferred to a public school because I wanted to play more sports and I just didn't uh-huh. have the opportunity to play uh-huh. you know sports at a higher level at that school and right. I switched to uh-huh. a public school and you know I just went to Wright State University, which is a, was a satellite at that point of Ohio State University in Dayton. Mm-hmm. Like, we, mm-hmm. we really couldn't afford for me to go to a, a way to college, I guess is the way mm-hmm. to put it. Mm-hmm. And I uh, just went from there, started my career out in marketing and and sales, and, and I transferred into the field of economics when I was about 30 years old.
1: That's interesting. Uh, when, when you were growing up, one of the things I'm intrigued about now, you, you went from a, a Christian school to a public school because you wanted to play, uh, you know, sports. <clears throat> was that a difficult transition for you? Because, you know, 10 years in a Christian school is pretty, you know, pretty con- disciplined and then you're going to public school. Was that uh, a major change for you?
2: Oh, huge. Um, <laughs> it was, you know, I still have all my lifelong friends from my private school. We're still mm-hmm. really close. And I have mm-hmm. a few Really, dear, close friends from the public school, but I mean, I went from a total school of I think our entire upper school, the high school, was four hundred kids total. Mm-hmm. My graduating class in the public school was seven hundred and eighty nine just my wow, class. yeah, yeah, so I really felt yeah. lost amongst the mm-hmm. you know all the people there. And I remember the day I showed up for football. There were so many people on the football field trying out. I'd never seen so many athletes. And I was telling my son's <laughs> girlfriend about this the other day. I said, i would never seen so many athletes on one field in my life. And I realized that, you know, here mm-hmm. are only going to keep like 50 of them.
1: Wow. So- probably
2: several hundred there.
1: I can't imagine. Well, you know, the reason why I asked that question, because 10 years in a Christian school gives you uh, a really what I would say a solid, you know, sort of a rock solid foundation and then going to public school. Then uh, you later went on to this university. When did you when did you feel uh, start feeling like you really were someone that would be good in marketing and sales? Because that's interesting. And then you segued into economics, so because marketing and sales are really different from economics.
2: <laughs> yeah, so you're right. I I guess I was like most twenty early twenty year olds. I felt entitled that I should just be a marketing mm-hmm. guru because I graduated from college and you know, mm-hmm. that's what my parents said you could do if you went to college, is that you could do mm-hmm. anything. So mm-hmm. I grew up a baby boomer and you know, they told us that we could do anything. Of course now the boomers have been probably the most aligned and mistreated group of individuals as a class coming through the system of of anybody because they just basically got their future cheated away from them but I think most Mm -hmm. boomers grew up believing Mm -hmm. they could do anything and of course Mm -hmm. you feel a little entitled and then you crash into the real world and they tell you you got no experience you got Mm -hmm. no business trying to be a marketing person and Mm -hmm. they start you in sales and it was a real eye-opener and I felt pretty uh I didn't go to a big-time school, so I didn't have any big, you know, alumni group or powerful friends behind me, or my Mm -hmm. parents were both what I would consider to be blue-collar. So we didn't have connections. I had to make all my connections. Mm -hmm. That's why I Mm -hmm. explained to my son that this has been about a lifetime of building connections that didn't happen overnight.
1: Well, and one of the things, too— um, you, you're absolutely right, and and I don't care what genre or what area you come from. And it really does get worked down, I mean, break downs, breaks down to relationships and the kind of connections you do make with people. Um, now, when when you were in sales and marketing, what intrigued you about economics particularly?
2: Well, I, I told my mom <laughs> this answer. She asked me this question. She said, why would you want to be an economist? I mean, it's like, it seems like a very boring job and you're very charismatic and you know, why would you want to be an economist? And I said, well mom, no offense, but when I look at our child, my childhood, you guys were really good to me, but we never really had a lot of money. And I figured if I studied money, <laughs> maybe I might understand
1: it better and I might have more of it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good answer. <laughs> she, laughed, she laughed so hard that she said, now I could see you doing
2: it for that reason. I said, Absolutely. Mom, if I don't study how money's made and how people perceive it Mm -hmm. and how Mm -hmm. people, you know, uh, invest themselves personally into the making of money and investing of money and use of money, Mm
1: -hmm. how in the world am I ever going to have any? We don't have any. Good answer. How were you able, Don, to use that knowledge, the knowledge you gained uh, in economics? And, and I'm intrigued because I took some classes in it, and I was very intrigued myself. The, the thing is, how did you translate that into a living, or did you translate that into a living? And I know you wrote this, this book, and we're going to talk about that a little later. Right. But how did you, uh, after you know, going into economics, translate that for people to make that saleable or make that marketable so people can understand how we make money, the use of it.
2: Well, it comes back to networking again, Barbara. I, um, <laughs> I met my wife when I was 30, um, and literally the day after my birthday, I think I might have met her on my birthday, but, mm-hmm. but we dated on the first date the day after my birthday. And I met her in Minneapolis, Minnesota and I was up there teaching a class to people how to host, sell an intangible product,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and she, and we ended up falling in love. Her her aunt and her mom her mom worked for the city. Her aunt was a county commissioner and former city council member in Minneapolis, and then Hennepin mm-hmm. uh, County. So her aunt was a very powerful political woman and very judgmental. Um, I loved her to death. We got to know each other really well, but she was very judgmental, especially when you're dating her her niece.
1: <laughs> and
2: I loves like a daughter and uh-huh. she told me she said so you've got this degree and a master's degree now in economics and business and what are you doing with it and I said well I don't know I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do mm-hmm. and she said well you should go into economic development to help communities create jobs and use your economic knowledge and your charisma to help draw people to the community and do deals mm-hmm. where they can invest in the community convince commit them to okay. invest in the community and then create jobs for your fellow Americans and for your, for people that need the jobs. Mm-hmm. And then you're have a purpose to your seeking prosperity and your mm-hmm. knowledge of money. And I said, that sounds good, but I have no experience at it. She goes, well, I might be able to help you get a really low level beginning job. So they thrust me mm-hmm. into a brand new organization that had no previous history of doing any of this, and basically she used her connections with the senator and everybody else to get me this job, and I did a pretty good job at it. I built the organization, and we created a fund, and we did a lot of really cool uh, projects that I just got lucky at, I guess, at first, but I, I, I pushed myself into all the advanced training that I could find on how to do the job That's from great. other experts around the country. And i That's uh, great, John. and I'm going to have to...
1: Stop you right there, because I hate doing it, but we got to take a quick break. But, you know, hooray mm-hmm. for your aunt, because she's looking out for her niece as well, getting you that job. <laughs> so, listeners, we're going to be right back with Mr. Don Holbert as we continue his journey of transformation. So, thank you for listening, and stay there. We'll be right back. <music>
0: Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. Can you think of anybody who does not want a better life and to be a better person? Think about that for a second. Almost everyone wants to be better, but how does one go about doing that? One thing that is making people better every week is tuning into the Self Improvement Show with Dr. Irene Conlon. All real change comes from within but many of us don't know where to find the information or guidance we need to make the changes that bring about the improvement. Most of us don't know how to work within. Listen Thursdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. Do you or somebody you love have a struggle with abuse? You don't need to be a slave to your abuse anymore. Listen for Beyond Abuse, Beyond Therapy, Beyond Anything with Dr. Lisa Cooney. Dr. Lisa overcame struggles in her own life. Two decades of sexual, emotional, and physical abuse nearly took their toll. In her 20s, she turned her life around and set upon a path to help others. She can help you find the key to take control of your life, too. Listen every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. Now, back to this week's program.
1: Well, hello there, and welcome back to the Transformation Success Show today with my guest, Mr. Don Holbrook, who is a 25 year economic development economist who's been on, featured on many, many numerous uh, television networks and radio networks. But today we're talking about his transformational journey. This man was at the peak of his career. He was an economist. He wrote this bestseller book, which we are going to talk about The Next America How to Survive and Thrive in an Unpredictable Economy. But he went on. On to reinvent his life and went into fiction writing. So, we're welcome back to the second half as we're going to talk a little bit about what Don has been doing. So, Don, we are going to sort of segue from your role um, working in economic development to create jobs, which you did a great job in doing that into how were you able to write this book and when did you write this book about how to thrive and survive in an unpredictable economy? What what drove your interest?
2: Well, I started, I started with my first book was when I was telling you about sitting on that porch, I decided to write a book where I interviewed the 50 top minds in economic development about what it took to put together a successful deal that would attract jobs to communities. And nobody had ever put together an assembly of the best minds, so I decided that that book would um, be a good one to write, and I'd never written a book before, so um, I went and wrote that book, and that was my very first book. It was called The Little Black Book of Economic Development, which is still a really huge bestseller in the industry every year since then, since 2008, or 2007 when it came out. And that Mm -hmm. book spurred my next book, which was Who Moved My Smokestack, which is about globalization. And how it was stealing jobs from America. So I've spent my life kind of helping people understand what was happening, especially to the baby boomers. That was my generation. Mm -hmm. I was watching Mm -hmm. them, you know, lose their jobs, get their excuse me, my voice, I got to get some water really quick. Uh-huh. lose their jobs. Their families were under duress. And so I started trying to focus on that. And then I wrote in 2011 this first edition of The Next America, but I self-published it. But, um, and it, it didn't do that great. It was a good book. And uh-huh. it was the culmination of all my years of experience in how to put these deals together and all the people that I knew and my colleagues. And at that point, it was in the tens uh-huh. of thousands of people. Um, uh-huh. But then a traditional publisher found it and said, would you redo this book? And mm-hmm. started again in 2014 and republished it with us. And I, that was the, probably the best decision I made because that transition to a traditional published book put the mm-hmm. weight of a real publishing house behind it. And it shot up over the summer of 2015 when I was actually in, in route to uh, Hawaii, the number one on Amazon in all three genres. It hit Number one. And when I was in the air, actually, they texted me and said, your book is number one in all of its genres. So they're really absolutely. proud of that, and
1: that, would you have that ever really thought,
2: catapulted that book.
1: Would you have ever thought that would have happened to Don Holbrook, this young man from Dayton, Ohio? No. <laughs> <laughs> and so no. Tell, tell the uh, listeners out there a little bit and about the book, How to Thrive, How to Survive and Thrive in an Unpredictable Economy, and where are we today? Is this book still relatable today? What are your thoughts on that?
2: It seems to be having a resurgence, because a publisher just called and asked me to speak at a conference here in San Diego sometime in the next few months. And uh, because of the Trump presidency winning, which I actually kind of call in this book, that Americans are set up with politics as usual, and they want to throw out all the incumbents, um, and they want people who are not politicians to run the government, because they don't trust government anymore, which especially baby boomers. They're very mad in the loss of, well, you know, 50% of baby boomers are economically unstable today. Mm-hmm. And that's a shame. You know, they're not inheriting their parents' world. They're they're inheriting a very bizarre, scary world to them. So they started a research into this book, and it started selling another huge, you know, it made another big move in April. And I think if you look at the reviews on Amazon and Goodreads and stuff, it started getting a ton more reviews because people were saying, hey, this guy called this whole, he didn't call Donald Trump. He called that type of systemic change that Americans were going to do this. And I said, well, I'm a behavioral scientist. I study people and why they do what they do, and baby boomers are fed up and scared. So they're going to start, they still have the votes. They're going to throw people out. And they will continue so, to do that.
1: So what what uh, have you thought about when we talk about people surviving and thriving We how? What are some of your strategies or what are some of the principles that you outlined in that book that would have people want to run and get that book in terms of learning some of the surviving surviving and thriving strategies? I like that, survive and thrive, because it's more than just surviving.
2: You're right. I mean, you're right, Barbara. um, There's some real basic tenets in the book, because I keep it really simple so anybody can pick this book up and understand it. It's not Mm -hmm. an academic book. Um, most of us agree on term limits. Ninety-nine percent of Americans want term limits. Um, that's the number one issue. Is that we want everybody to be in office for a limited time, no matter how powerful or connected they are. We need change. <clears throat> mm-hmm. We need fresh minds. We need people who are not there to make a. That you can't. You shouldn't be going into Congress and coming out rich. I mean, there's some mm-hmm. something wrong with that model. Is what I would tell you. And most Americans feel very strongly, and of course, the, the uh, antagonists say that do we have term limits. We go for re-election every you know, two to six years, depending on what you're running for. And so, uh, but that's, that's an argument that's ridiculous. I mean, we want real term limits, and that's what people agree on. And then we need, we need budget control. Um and we need um you know there's a bunch of things. Well what do you mean by budget afford-
1: control? Because we're talking about well, surviving and thriving. And Don, we know that a lot of people in this country right now are not surviving and they're not thriving. I mean, in absolutely. terms of the low income uh, you know, situation. And I can tell you I just came back from Cuba and I can tell you it is not surviving and thriving, although they have socialized medicine, they have health care, they have, you know, uh, free rent free education, and it, what I saw was not surviving and thriving. So when we talk about budget Absolutely. control, what do you mean? <laughs> well, so, that's so what do you example. mean. Well, it's a good
2: example, when I say that we need an, an, a realistic budget, um, we need accountability in the budget, and we need a tax system that actually uh, is fair and does what it's supposed to do, which is to lift people out of poverty, to empower yeah. them to get ahead and change, and to take care of people who really, truly are disabled and injured, at work or from infirmities and disease. I mean, we need a basic mm-hmm. universal package that does cover that. So I'm a big proponent that we do need affordable health care. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, and so I try not to yes, get political. i we do. <laughs> but I'm giving you I'll give you an example. I went to the DMV with my mm-hmm. oldest son when he got his driver's license. And there was a lady outside that was obviously anti-Obamacare. And, and she was pounding on everybody about how bad Obamacare was. And I thought, saw it as a teaching moment for my oldest son. And I walked up to her and I said, so what would you do? And she said, what? I said, well, I see you're against Obamacare. I said, so let me let me ask you, what's what's your solution? So if we do away with Obamacare, what well, what should we do in place of it? She said, well... I don't know, but we'll think of something. I said, Well when you think of something, why don't you advocate that? So my, my mm-hmm. answer to your question about the book is this. If you don't know what we need and why we need it and what the change should be, don't advocate. That's advocate true. from a base of knowledge. So right. my book goes through these ten basic things that I think would truly make America great. Again to use one of Trump's mm-hmm. <laughs> also, I'm not telling you that trump email. Right. <laughs> but, but I, I thought about it. redoing the book and saying, how do we really make America great? Yes. And I'm just going to go back and go over these 10 points. Uh, I like the one-liner. You have to know what like you're your. advocating
1: for. <laughs> not cutting you off. I just wrote it down. Advocate on the base of knowledge. Love it.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. On the basis of knowledge. I mean, on when people say that they stand knowledge. for something, you know what I ask them for? Why? And why is it better than what we have? I'm not telling you that I'm for Obamacare. But if you're going to tell me to get rid of at least a movement towards the right direction, tell me what you're going to do to make it better and why I should abolish, you know, something that was put in place yeah. because we yeah. didn't have universal health care that would accept people that had pre-existing conditions. Let's talk about that's the basis of it. So tell me what you're going to do that we're going to move to that's better. When you can't tell me, then I think you're an idiot. I'm not going to make you say that, but I'm not no. going to take you serious because you can't advocate from the position of knowledge. I- And that's the Republican Party's problem right now. I mean, you watch it in Congress, in the argument right now, Barbara, they don't know what they're actually going to go to, and they've actually admitted it.
1: (laughs) It's true. And that's the problem. It's true. And it is a challenge. I don't like the word problem, but yes, it is a challenge. But Don, tell me, uh, you know, from your perspective as an economist, because one of the things, and I'm going back to some Christian principles here, when we talk about um, what's happening and lifting people out of poverty and having budget control and having accountability of our political uh, you know, appointees with term limits, which I do agree, because you do need fresh minds. You do need people who have a servant heart, servant attitude, um, but But one of the things is how do we, in terms of lifting people out of poverty, it's almost like having to change a mindset. It is. How do we deal with changing a mindset? And I I ask that question maybe rhetorically because a lot of people are not reading anymore. There are not going to be a lot of people that are going to run out and rush and get your book and read because they want bigger print. They want shorter verse. They want quick Maybe the baby boomers yeah. still will read your book, but there are, there are a coming generation that they want fast stuff. Everything's about fast food, fast this, social media. We're not communicating. The millennials, I'm concerned about. I love them dearly, but I, I am concerned. I didn't mean, you know, but my point, my question to you is when we start talking about lifting people out of poverty, how do we change a mindset? Because well, poverty being not, also is a mindset. Easy. Mm-hmm.
2: It's, 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 not, it's not easy and not everybody will. It is an individual choice. I mean, mm-hmm. if you want to be successful, nobody owes that to you. You owe it to yourself and only you can get yourself there. And I, I decided that there was a process mm-hmm. to transform your life when you go through these transformational periods uh, and reinventions of yourself. And I started to track that I've been through three already since 2000. And and I'm in a fourth one now, as you know, I went to fiction and everybody told me, you're nuts, you're a number one bestseller in nonfiction. I mean, you sell a lot of books Mm -hmm. in nonfiction and you have a a whole speech platform built around, um, you know, speaking and, uh, you know, I had a multi-million dollar speaking platform Mm and I decided to write fiction and some of it was thrust upon me and some of it was, but it was definitely a life reinvention that I had to accept in 2015 and so I decided that there was a process, and I started looking at the process of reinvention, mm-hmm. and I decided that it's an individual choice, and you okay. have to ignore all the naysayers, and you have to want that choice. You have to recognize the circle that you're in now, and when I mean circle, it's where you are in life, mm-hmm. and what put you there, and then why, are you, why do you maybe feel the way you are, is that you're stuck or whatever, nobody owes you an exit from that circle, the first thing you have to come to the conclusion of is uh, I'm not entitled. Um, There's no guarantee I'll be successful, even if I step out of the circle. It will definitely Mm -hmm. be uncomfortable. And everybody will tell me that I'm nuts and people will Mm -hmm. try and give me lots of advice. And Mm -hmm. as you know, Barbara, from our earlier conversation, I would tell you that you don't take advice from people who haven't done it. You you can't prove it. You take advice from people who have done what you want to do and can prove it and stand behind their words, not from armchair coaches.
1: Absolutely, so, it's almost like backseat drivers. So do it. Just <laughs> just
2: step out and do it.
1: So so anyway, but in going through the process, it is a uh, it's a choice. It's a decision of choice where you exercise yeah. that choice. I also, in my world, I call it stepping out on faith because there are no guarantees, sure. and you may step out on faith. And maybe you won't succeed, but you keep trying. And so, did you yeah. have any of these opportunities where you did step out, and it wasn't it wasn't successful? Oh, still a
2: lot. I mean, people that are successful just are people that got up every time they got kicked down, stood back up, and said, "Wow, I won't do that again. <laughs> what am I going to do differently? How do I not get kicked in the teeth again?" I need mm-hmm. to avoid that. And then you go and you fix that obstacle and you go over one obstacle at a time, one foot forward at a time, you're going to fail a bunch. You're going to get kicked in the teeth a bunch. You're going to get told that you're nuts a bunch or that you shouldn't do this, or you should go get a real job or whatever people tell you. And then once you succeed, they'll all tell you, they always knew you would. And I was there for you the whole time. So those are just false friends and superficial friends. And you are going to have plenty of those too, That uh, they're not real oh my, what- friends. But you've got to know where you're going. I, I think the first step mm-hmm. when you step out is, what circle am I shooting for? What's a success? I mean, I, always, I was just telling this yesterday to my son's girlfriend. I said, if you don't know what your circle of success looks like and you can't define it to me and tell me things about it and tell me how you see yourself standing in and, and what it's going to be, what's it like in that environment, and how in the world do you know if you're on the right path to get there?
1: That's true. Well, so you, well, guys, you know I'm, I I am wondering about you know the major transitions that you've had that many and we as you know a woman as a seasoned woman I do know that major transitions come with high risk and I know a ton of stress. So how did yeah. you manage during the period where the outcome was yet to be determined and what would you tell the listeners that you did you- that helped you?
2: I kept, like, I mean, I, I'll, I'll tell you, I probably wouldn't do uh, well on the karma stuff or the conversations about, you know, the secrets or all that kind of stuff. Not that mm-hmm. I'm opposed to good karma or any of that kind of stuff, but mm-hmm. if I had an audience, and I've had many audiences have asked this question, how many of you believe in positive thinking and they all raise their hands and, how many people believe in good karma and doing things mm-hmm. like that? And they all raise their hands. And I said, well, what's it done for you? Have, you? have you changed your life? I mean, are you in, are you in the spirit of success because of it? Or mm-hmm. do you just, mm-hmm. is your ego just feeding you to make you feel better? In other words, you have to have all those things, but you have to know where you're going. And I think what you have to tell yourself is, look, I'm going to stumble. I'm going to fall. I'm going to make a fool of myself several times. I'm going to you know, learn things on the fly. I'm going to have to adapt. And I'm going to have to learn how to learn from my mistakes and get better. And if I can do that, i got a chance someday of hitting the homer. You know, I thought mm-hmm. hitting number one as the best-selling author and getting recognized by the Authors Guild and International Best mm-hmm. Association was mm-hmm. going to be the pinnacle of my success, Barbara. And, you know, <laughs> I felt pretty good about it the whole time I was in Hawaii, right? I, was on I bet. And I was feeling great. But I came home and I didn't make any more money because of it. I mean, I sold a few more books and things like that. I didn't get any more bookings, and I mean, it didn't really have anything, but it was just a mantelpiece. I mean, I won an award, and I got some recognition, but it just sits on my mantle now, and I look at it all the time. And I'm like, wow. So hitting number one in nonfiction, you know, and I, I did some research, and you'll, you'll find this interesting. There's a million three new books a year. Can I cut you off right out. there, no, Don? No.
1: Sorry, we've got okay. to take a quick break. We're going to come okay. back, and I want to hear about that experience for you. So, listeners, stay tuned. We're going to be right back with my guest today, Mr. Don Holbrook. And thank you for listening. We'll be right back.
0: On Facebook, along with some of the greatest minds of the world, and that includes you. Visit us on Facebook at Voice America Empowerment. How are you doing in your life? Do you control your life, or does it control you? In our hectic, overconnected world, do you spend too much time feeling tired and wired? Tune in to Master Your Life with hosts Leah Mattinson and Dr. Howard Rankin for inspiration, insight, and intelligence on how to gain control of yourself and your life. Along with some inspirational and knowledgeable guests, Leah and Howard will give you the tools needed to help you on your journey. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, Noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com It's your world. This is Transformation for Success. To reach Dr. Barbara Young or today's guest, please call into the program at 1-888-346-9141 That's 1-888-346-9141 You may also send an email to info at transformationforsuccess.com. Now, back to this week's program.
1: Hi there and welcome back today with my guest, Mr. Donald Holbrook. We are having quite a discussion today of this man who spent many years as a motivational speaker, number one best-selling, published author to reinvent himself, and he's following his new passion to write fiction. So today we are going to now talk about his choice of what he's writing today. So, Don. Thank you again for being on the show today. And this has really been some interesting conversation. But we we talked about transitioning and your transformational journey and some of the things that, that you discussed about making a change and how you made those changes. And some were good. Some were maybe not so successful. But let's talk about how you came into your latest transition into fiction writing and why the choice of the Ninth Templar. What makes this so passionate for you?
2: Oh, you know, I think, Barbara, that as a little boy, I I just—I think a lot of little boys have a couple things in common. We usually (laughs) love dinosaurs at some point, and we Mm -hmm. grow out of that sometimes. Sometimes we don't, Mm -hmm. Uh, and we all see ourselves as this knight in shining armor. So, this whole, you know, utopian view of knights being, you know. Uh, something cool or something that sticks with most little boys. So when uh-huh. I went to Europe in 2008 with my family, I, I, I'm a castle uh, fanatic, uh-huh. so I've got books and books and books and books on castles, and I'm a history fanatic, so I have uh-huh. a lot of medieval history and stuff. And my, We were over there, and my oldest boy said to me, we were at this castle, and he said, Dad, it says here that there were nine founding members of the Knights Templar, and this is one of their castles that they built, but it only names eight names. And I looked at the plaque, and he was right. And I we went to another castle the next, the next day, and it had this another one of these Templar castles, and said mm-hmm. you know eight names again. And I started doing a little googling, and I said, why is there only name in eight names when it says there were nine founding members? And it said that the ninth name was kept anonymous by the grand the first the founder Hugh de Depart- that he did it on purpose so that they that that person could guard the secret mm. of the discovery, which led to the ultimate demise almost 200 years later by the betrayal of the church and the, and the Vatican, I mean, the Vatican and the king of France. Mm-hmm. So I thought, wow, what a great conspiracy theory. I mean, a 972-year-old conspiracy theory that still hasn't been solved to this day, and people have all kinds of speculation about it, but nobody knows for sure what happened, but it was so powerful that this guy knew he was on something and had to keep it anonymous by hiding one of the names. through history. Wow. Well, I started oh. researching this you know, this mysterious Ninth Templar while mm-hmm. I was in Europe, and I went back to Europe and did some more research, and I ran into a bunch of these real Templars that really still exist that I didn't know, and they got pretty perturbed that I was researching their stuff, and they contacted me and sent me all kinds of questions, and eventually some guy called me, and he uh, identified himself, I think he called from Switzerland, or London, mm-hmm. I they have headquarters in London and Switzerland, their main headquarters is in... Switzerland and Geneva, but he called me English and he spoke to me and he said, why are you looking into us so much? I said, I'm thinking about writing a fiction book about this. It's pretty cool. And he said, you think you, think you know something that hasn't already been written by all these people like Dan Brown and everything? I said, oh, that's all hogwash. He did a horrible job on the Templars. He did a great job on telling a great story, but it's pretty old stuff and you know, uh-huh. everybody knows about the bloodline theory. I said, so that wouldn't be something I'd write about. And he said, so what you guys? Said, I'm going to write about this ninth guy that you guys don't, don't name and nobody ever knows who he was. He says, you really think you know who it was? I said, I think I got it figured out. I'm a behavioral scientist. And they weren't that bright back then in 1118. 18. Uh, so it had to be somebody from his inner circle that he trusted. So I said, I'm using deductive logic. I think I can figure out who it was. And he said, well, I'm not going to tell you that I agree or disagree with you or tell you you're right or wrong, but I'd love to hear your conclusion. So I told yeah. him, and he said, no, ever came up with that theory. I've never heard that. And he goes, but he was fascinated. So that went on to cultivate a great friendship. And in 2010, he, uh, he reached out to me and said, I'd love you to join the order. And I told him that I wasn't, I wasn't um, uh, worthy to be in the order. I knew what the requirements were. And he laughed and he said, well, I'd like you to consider coming into the order. And I called an American contact that he gave me who turned out to be a fascinating mm-hmm. man who spent all of his life as a foreign service agent, uh, sure. which is a code word for a secret agent for the U.S. I found out later. <laughs> so, <laughs> he's an older man who retired. And um, he. I, I told him, I said, well, he wants me to join the order, but I don't have any of the background. I'm not from noble birth. I'm not a noble. I don't have any great quest, and I don't know mm-hmm, three Templar mm-hmm. knights to vouch for me. And he said, "Don, when the Grand Master of the Order asks you to join the Order, you don't need references. He is the ultimate leader of our worldwide order. He can make that call. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's who Sir John is. <laughs> okay. He's like, yes, because he never told me that. And so, I ended up getting knighted at West Point at the uh, wow. Cadet Chapel on West Point. And uh, ended up uh, later on becoming a Templar historian and continuing this story, which has been about eight or ten years' worth of research and rewrites, and now I'm down to the last push to get this thing out to people I've actually been talking to producers and directors and publishers about uh-huh. for the last couple months. So that's, how, that's what got me here, was just serendipity of my boy noticing these names, and I followed wow. the clues.
1: Isn't that how interesting uh, things can happen to one in one's life? And so here you are today, you know, this former economist and writer, bestseller, now writing this book, uh, which sounds like it's going to be very fascinating. But tell me, you know, uh, when you're writing this, you ran into a guy by the name of Robert Raymond. And as I understand, his last project was Schindler's List. And you yeah, talk cool. about how you came to secure him as your literary agent and manager. How did that happen?
2: Uh, serendipity again. I was at the cigar <laughs> shop having a cigar, and uh, a guy knew of him, and I didn't know anything about Mr. Raymond. Um, and we spoke on the phone through this introduction, and uh, about a year, we recently just kind of parted ways about two weeks ago. Um, mm-hmm. But we had about a year you know, relationship, and he was a great guy, uh, lots of vision, and he was the guy behind the Schindler's List project. And But his vision for my project, I found, was colliding with a lot of my vision, and I had to make a really hard call. And this is something that I'll tell you, you're talking about transformation. I had to make a gut call where I had to basically say to a very, very well-established person in Hollywood, in the publishing world, that we don't fit well. And we're, we're friendly with each other. We're we're not on mm-hmm. bad terms. Mm-hmm. And he agreed with me. He said, we don't. We just don't. He he wants me to write a book. He wanted me to rewrite this book from a very academic standpoint. And I said, this, this is not an academic audience. Mm-hmm. This audience is a thriller audience. They want this book to be fast paced. They want it to be... i got to tell some of the secrets and stuff, but they're not going to get into classic English prose. That will mm-hmm. never mm-hmm. catch this audience with that. I know mm-hmm. the audience. It's a really mm-hmm. big audience. You look at Dan Brown, and you look at um, one of my favorite authors, who's uh, Steve Berry. Uh, mm. who's a great thriller writer. Right. Uh, and the late Vince, you know, Vince Flynn was one of my favorites. The late Vince Flynn. You know, so yes. I asked him that at a very early age. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But he great is. writers. They don't write like that. And I said, I see myself writing more of their style than I do, you know, Dan Brown. I'm uh, not Dan Brown, but uh, yep. Tom Canali, who wrote Showers right. List. And I think you want me to be another Tom Canali, and I can't be him. Yeah, well, and you know. we both agreed that we had to mm-hmm. part ways because of that style difference. And uh, but you know, I since then I made that decision two weeks ago. I mm-hmm. the phone rang three times since then with well, other people saying, "I hear you're free." I mean, (laughs) can we have lunch tomorrow? Okay, I'm going to lunch tomorrow with us. Well, you know, so you know, the the subject is so big, Barbara. What I found was the audience is humongous, Uh, and you got to go back to that circle theory. You have to know where you want to be and why. And the circle for the Templars. I love the story, and I love the secrets behind it, and I love the mystery that unfolds, and I love the conclusions that we come up with. But you got to love the story, but you also have to know that there's a humongous audience. I'm not telling yeah. you that I'm another Dan Brown, but he sold 66 mm-hmm. million copies of that book. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it was well, not very well done from the Templar perspective. And the Templar well, story do you is way foresee that you're going to
1: sell all these 60 million copies of this book coming out?
2: I don't know. I don't, if I got a <laughs> tenth of that, I'd be happy, because it'd be way more than a nonfiction author, remember? <laughs> I, I, I mean, but my point is is that the market is so huge for this, and he proved it. I mean, Dan Brown proved it. Mm-hmm. And his mm-hmm. book, The Da Vinci Code, is a great story. It's isn't done well by a Templar perspective, and they would all say that. But it's a great story of this holy grail that everybody's been looking for for a long time. So my story, you don't really realize it, but it's a grail story. It's just the Knights Templar is protecting the Grail, allegedly that yeah. exists right. that people have sought forever, and people have to go on this journey to figure out what is the Grail and what does it mean to humanity, and what happens if we fail? What if our hero fails, you know, to mm-hmm. protect mm-hmm. it and find it because it, it's lost right now? And what if the the eel and the you know the dark side wins? What happens to humanity? Because there has to be
1: a climax that affects well. us all. Well, you know, in the Manufacturer's Manual, it does share with us what the end will be. So I don't think there's a mystery about what will happen to mankind if we believe in the Manufacturer's Manual, which I call the Holy Bible. So, but I am excited for you that you have found something that really taps into, I can hear your enthusiasm, I can hear how excited you are about this book, The Ninth Templar, and... I want to wish you all the success, Don, in your new journey because you transitioned, uh, you said, three times on this journey. And this is the next major transition in your life. And I really, really want to thank you for sharing that. One, I want to ask, you know, when you, if you had to tell an audience about publishing or writing a book, maybe um, becoming a bestseller, what would you tell them? <laughs> From well, you know, it's a process. I
2: was at a writers' club meeting on Sunday in mm-hmm. Vegas, and the guy that was, is a very respected friend of mine disagrees with me. He said that you have to be a traditionally published author to be successful, and I think that that's very, very helpful.
1: And I won't say mm-hmm.
2: that it didn't lead to some of my success, but I sold a lot of books as a um, independent um, mm-hmm. author as well. You know, and, and th- that. And so what you have to have is you have to invest in yourself and you have to invest wisely and you have to use the different business approaches that will be most successful to help get your book in front of the most people. You have to use the social media platforms, which I know you're really well aware of. Mm -hmm. You have to promote constantly. and if People criticize you for it. Tell them, hey, I'll give you some bills. You want to pay them? Mm -hmm. Because books pay my bills. So I can't go to dinner with you. I have to sell some books. I mean, you've got to be candid with people, but, you know, there's a process to it. And then you have to, mm-hmm. you know, you have to, um, understand what niche you should be in when you're writing your mm-hmm. book, where should it be mm-hmm. to have the most, you don't want to compete against Dan Brown. He'll, he'll kick no. your butt. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, so you mm-hmm. got to pick a niche that makes sense for your book where you have an mm-hmm. opportunity to not be up against, you know, Dan Brown or, um. Steve Barry, or any of these big thriller writers in my case, or mm-hmm. at least where I have a chance to be in a niche that they're not in specifically, that's not their strongest niche, and then market yourself in that niche, mm-hmm. and you've got to spend money on yourself. Even when you're a traditionally published author, you have to invest in your own promotion. Yes, you do. Uh, and if you're afraid yes, to you do, do, do that, then nobody else is going to do it either. And I think well, if I, you pick your audience well and you cultivate that audience on Facebook and Instagram and all the social media and then you do a pre-launch for the book where you get some critical mass built up to give you um, what they call day one sales day. You have a lot of ring-ups where they all the sales come in on the day of your publication coming out and you get noticed on Amazon because it's just an SEO engine, search engine. Right and then it starts to put you out there in front of people and say, what about this book? If you look at this book, Carol, you know, look at this book. And so there is a process to it, and I think you have to learn about it and take the time to learn it. I've done an awful lot of articles. I give away an awful lot of information on how to do that, but I openly I share the process that I've used so to much. conquer that. And Thank actually, you. You know, I think everybody that's going to be successful when they define their circle of success, I'll leave you with this part because I know we're getting close to the end, And that is, I think everybody needs a Bleacher Reacher project. You have to know something you're working on. If it hits Mm -hmm. and it does well, it will change your life to the way you think you want it to be. And you have to understand what that is, and you Mm -hmm. have to hit a Bleacher Reacher to make it work. Because even if you only get a base hit, you're still moving towards a home run. You're still going to score a run. And if you hit a Bleacher Reacher... And you have a project that knocks it out of the ballpark. And it should, it should put you squarely in the circle of success and be rewarding. And what I found from the Ninth Templar is it's a humongous audience of over 100 million English-speaking people that are fascinated with the topic.
1: No, thank I've you, Don. Over and over. Thank you so much for sharing so much today. I really enjoyed it. I know my listeners have enjoyed the show today with my guest, Mr. Don Holbrook. And, Don, again, I want to wish you so much success in your future endeavors and the successes of your new fiction writing period, because I know there's more mm-hmm. coming. So, audience and listeners, I welcome your feedback. Don't be shy. Send your comments or questions to me at infotransformationforsuccess.com. You can also Skype your comments to me, and you can reach me on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. So don't be shy. And again, Don, thank you so much for sharing your transformational story today and your success strategies. So this is Dr. Barbara Young signing off until next Tuesday. I have another exciting show for you next Tuesday. You won't want to miss it because it's an incredible story of a woman who overcame so many obstacles. And she finally, finally reached the pinnacle of success. So thank you for listening and have a blessed week. Be forever transformed.